The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live Market Watch Edition. I'm Angela Moore, Retirement Editor at Market Watch, and I'm joined today by Nicole Webb, Vice President, Senior Vice President, excuse me, at Wealth Enhancement Group. Hi, Nicole. Thank you for being with us today. Yeah, Angela, it's so fun to be here. Well, um, let's just jump right into it. Um, inflation yeah. inflation is the hot topic right now. And as we head into the fall, um, what are some trends that you're seeing with consumers? Yeah, the consumer is the biggest headwind we see in the market right now. And so I would say that starting in October, the consumer is going to be at the forefront of every conversation around the market and inflation. And the reason for that being, we rely so heavily on the consumer and retail numbers in September with back to school, November with Black Friday sales and Cyber Monday, and then December holiday. And consumer right now is weakening and there is so much data to suggest it. Um, one of the big biggest trends we're seeing play out is buy now, pay later, um, yeah. which is so interesting because I remember 30 plus years ago talking about layaway. Um, yeah. And here we are talking about the new ways in which the consumer is looking uh, you know, at buying items now and, and staggering that, that payout. The even more interesting thing as we pull the layers back, and so for those listening, is this bifurcation or this great divide between different income levels in America and the way they're feeling about inflation and the pressures around them. And that is gonna continue to be an issue when we see changes in things like oil prices, the credit card interest rates, on and on. Um, so that is that is an absolute headwind to this market uh, on a go forward basis. Okay. Now how should we as consumers be prioritizing our financial behavior right now in this inflationary environment, whether we're looking at saving or investing um, or spending? Yeah, I, it almost goes without saying, and so not to sound like a, a, a broken record, but it is more important than ever to be thinking about living within your means and changing your consumer behaviors in adjustment to the likelihood that inflation is here for a while. And while we still have a really strong job market and a lot of what we believe the Fed is doing is data dependent on, on jobs mm -hmm. and the consumer relies so heavily on the fact that if I lost my job today, I'm confident or fairly confident I could go find something else to do. We are starting to see early signs of weakening in the labor market. We're starting to see some pressures on return to work, which really mm -hmm. changes the dynamic between the employer and the employee. And so when you're living in this environment and you're thinking about your savings and your spending, it is different as we look ahead because where we normally go if unexpected events happen, like a home equity line of credit or a credit card, these are all now at interest rates that are so cost prohibitive 
as that bridge strategy should we have an unexpected event in our life. And so right now it's thinking about these trends of can I trade down to a different place to make purchases? Do I actively look for coupons in the Sunday paper? I mean, some of these measures around being a really prudent spender so that I can can't afford to continue to save is the, the number one priority, regardless of which of those three income levels um, that we talk about that you are in at this moment. Right, that's such a good point about how the interest rate environment is gonna be impacting the credit cards and the home equity loans and kind of that, you know, collision of you know, the weakening labor market and, and all of that. It's, it's a great point. Um, okay, so we are all saving for retirement, fingers yeah. crossed, or we should be. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so that's something for everybody. But what are things people who are maybe 10 years out from retirement should be doing in particular right now? Yeah, the biggest the biggest thing that we see in our office and our firm focuses on providing comprehensive financial planning advice. So think about the three pillars of planning, taxes, estate, or sometimes I like to think of it more as stewardship. How am I thinking about my net worth on a forward looking basis? And then the investment strategies and really providing cohesiveness around that. The number one thing most people bring forward, whether they're 20 years, 10 years, or two years from retirement, or sometimes even living in retirement, is this conflicting priorities. In what order do I do what? Mm -hmm. And for your question specifically, if you're 10 years out for retirement or you have any runway whatsoever before retirement, the number one thing that we are coaching people on is don't just think about your 401k as the only savings vehicle. It is absolutely the easiest savings vehicle if you are currently employed and your employer offers you a retirement plan you just don't even have to really think much about it deducted directly from payroll oh i get yeah. a tax benefit for doing it but the i gotcha is that everything is tax deferred in the future yes. and yes. while there are some ways to access that talking about life changing events you know the ability to take a loan on that money if you're still actively employed but you know one needs to be thinking about all of the the buckets of money they should be saving in right. so that they can create purpose and prioritization so that it's not just credit cards and home equity lines of credit available to people yeah. when something pops up that is unexpected yeah and again another great point by you the tax deferred nature of the 401k you're like oh i've got X save for retirement, but really you have X minus taxes. There's nothing. Is, it's a gut punch for a lot of us, I think. There's nothing less fun, Angela, than sitting across the table for some, from someone who is so proud of the wealth they've accumulated for retirement and then drawing out their financial inventory and then adding a line item that says liability, federal tax, liability, yeah. <laughs> state tax. And then depending on where that person lives, taking, and let's just say it's a $2 million IRA or 401k, and suddenly based on their need, you're taking 30 to 35% of that away. And then you start talking to them instead about this $1.4 million that they've saved for retirement. That's a very different yeah. number. Yeah. And when you think about retirement, you know that 
if you're retiring in your mid 60s and your life expectancy for the average woman at that age is into the 90s, then the likelihood that at some point you're going to have to replace a vehicle or some of these larger one-time expenses, now you're talking about paying sales tax, registration tax, mm -hmm. and federal and state tax just to access your money to make those bigger purchases. Right. So it just escalates these costs dramatically. And, and that that's unfun. And so that's where I say, if you have any runway left, really think about where I'm saving and maybe I'm not getting a tax deduction today, but it's giving me the opportunity for things to cost less in the future. Right. So we're talking Roth, Roth 401ks, Roth IRAs, you know, what, what do you, what are some other options for people? And just a traditional brokerage account. I mean, true, you know, it takes real discipline to save in this bucket, but letting your money hit your, your checking account, and then taking a portion of that and immediately sending it elsewhere. And so whether you think about that as a non-qualified account, a brokerage account, anything where all the taxes have been taken and now we are saving it in an investment account with a long horizon because we know that we need just as much long-term money that's after tax as our buckets that are long-term tax deferred. So that think about it, you get out into retirement and now just really simple plot line, you can take 50% from each bucket if they're identical in size, but you're only paying tax now on 50% of the income you're spending. And that's right. very different in terms of how many net dollars you get to keep. And that's where I, I commend people who have the discipline to do this for a long period of time, but it is, it is a thought change because so often we think about, I have to max out my 401k. And what we challenge our clients on is it's great if you can afford it. But for us, you go to the match because that's part of your total income package from your employer. And then the last place you go is taking that all the way up to the max because there's all these other investment accounts in between. Right. Now, um, and yes, you're right. It's hard to be disciplined on that. And it's also hard to, you know, particularly for maybe people like you and I who are so steeped in watching the markets all the time, you think, is now the right time? Is this the right time? Am I buying? I know. If you do kind of do it on this regular cadence, you know, with dollar cost averaging and just kind of as a regular, you know, habit, then maybe you don't get, that's one of the great things about the 401k. You just don't look at it and keep, you know, investing. So I think that what you're talking about, this kind of yeah. disciplined approach could be very good for people. And it's disciplined. And I also, it is overwhelming. You and I are watching the markets all the time. Mm -hmm. And, and, and you and I knowing everything we know still in conversations we've shared with each other, some of it, it gets to be a lot. And then you're almost paralyzed in your ability to make a decision. Yes. I put myself on the other side of the table in I'm living my life and I'm really busy in some other concentration. Now, instead of just my employer picks my investment funds, my employer picks my custodian, my employer makes my payroll talk to the custodian. Now you're telling me that on top of the financial discipline, I should figure out a custodian setting it. I mean, there's so many mechanisms to this right. and then also what to buy. And you know, this is where 
we talk a lot in industry jargon about asset location. And what that really means is buying different types of investments when you're using after-tax money, because mm -hmm. investments that are after-tax flow on to your yearly tax return versus there's no tax reporting for these qualified plans, retirement plans, mm -hmm. until you actually take distribution. So again, it puts a lot of onus on the individual, but at the same time, the outcome is exponentially better if you can get yourself to take those actions or delegate them away. And right. I think that's where there is almost this intangible value in delegation. If you can't get yourself to do it, then it's a great responsibility to say, okay, someone else take take this one off my plate because I know right. the outcome is worth it. Sort of a personal CFO or something. Yes. <laughs> Um, now, I would be remiss and in trouble if I did not mention um, to the audience that you can submit questions to us, really, to Nicole, um, yes. and she would uh, love to answer them. I'm gonna, just going to jump in with one of the questions that we have received. Um, we have Mike, who wanted to know if you could speak to tips as an investment. Um, you know, I've been hearing a lot about them as well. Uh, you know, again, they're supposed to be inflation protected. What do you think about them as, as an investment? Yeah, I think it tips are wonderful and that they there's but you're also limited in how many dollars you can put into any open purchase in tips and so you can buy them direct as a consumer right up from treasury direct and you, you will be limited in how much you can purchase you'll they'll walk you through all of the steps the treasury inflation protected it, what it really is just telling you is that the rate of inflation will be the applied rate of interest. And I'm, I'm really simplifying this down. You can find lots of details on treasury.gov. Um, so they are wonderful for that reason. We went for almost 40 years living in a deflationary environment. It's very interesting because if you were born after the 1970s, you haven't really experienced real inflation and certainly have not experienced unexpected inflation, which by definition is unexpected, but we are living through that. Some people would say, well, this one was really expected, but I mean, even Jerome Powell was saying this was transitory for a very long period of right. time. So, you know, the resurgence of tips has a lot to do with the resurgence of inflation. So again, you're limited in your dollar amount. You can take that onus and purchase them for yourself, yourself. Um, but also, it is a really interesting moment in time when we think about the rate of uh, risk-free interest when we talk about treasuries. And so while you're limited in the amount of tips that you can own um, or purchase in any open offering, you're not restricted in how many treasuries you can own. The 10-year treasury is usually a guide for the growth rate in the United States. And right now, many people believe that the 10-year treasury is above the growth rate or what we traditionally think of as the growth rate. And so you can let without limited in how many dollars you can own in them or purchase in them at any given time. So I would just take it a step further and say, tips are wonderful, but if you are someone seeking risk-free investment, um, treasuries are another avenue generally to look at. 
Okay, well, we've got a related question here from um, Patricia, who asks whether tips and I bonds, which is another thing you can get from Treasury Directive, spent quite a bit of time looking at those myself, um, whether those are the only inflation adjusted income vehicles, um, do any fixed annuities offer inflation increases? We're talking about two totally different investment products. Okay. Um, when we go from a treasury um, or an I bond over to an annuity. And so I, you know, annuities are underwritten and provided by insurance companies. And so every annuity product is going to be a prospectus product. And every prospectus is going to tell you what the insurance company is effectively promising to the consumer. And so I can't speak to all the available annuities in the open marketplace. Sure. But what I would tell you is that when financial advisors think about annuities as a tool in their toolbox, and when they reach for them, they're generally reaching for them when people are looking for some level of protection from downside risk. And so that downside risk could be inflation, that downside risk could be the, the equity market or the stock market or even the bond market. And so I would just say that's a, a tough question to ask because annuity products aren't necessarily designed to provide a rate of interest coming from the U.S. government that is declared as the you know inflationary rate. But instead, they're a product to provide, they're an insurance product. And we are paying a fee to be insured in some way. Um, and so that's where you have to just explore a little bit deeper when it comes to product like an annuity. Okay. Um, now, a little bit earlier when we were talking about um, investing and, and uh, nest eggs, and you were talking about uh, women's life expectancy, you know, into their 90s. Um, I noticed you said women's life expectancy. And so that's something I'd like to touch on. Um, do you have different um, advice that you give to male clients versus female clients? Or, you know, is there a different type of projection that you um, that you run? Yeah, the answer is yes. I mean, men and women, traditionally, when it comes to financial planning, women's life expectancies are longer. And generally speaking, you know, we tend to see female investors statistically err towards less downside risk, meaning less of a wild ride being their preferred investment experience versus mm -hmm. their male counterparts. And that's convenient because men tend to expire sooner. And so they can have fewer years of a wild ride and it statistically generally will work out. Right. Women, again, it works out well that they want often a smoother ride and therefore it helps from a life expectancy standpoint. Most importantly, when advising women on their own or the female in a traditional couple, it's thinking about that longer life expectancy and the years where maybe some of the roles of their spouse are delegated away 
or what that long-term care cost plan is if the woman is left living longer on her own. And then in conjunction with that, getting really well educated around what social security options, what pension options, required minimum distribution options. So again, just creating a multi-year strategy that models out the true differences between both parties in the couple. And times are changing. I would say in my 20 years with our firm, I've seen it go from really male dominated conversations at our tables to both parties truly being participants. That financial literacy and advocacy for uh, you know, female risk tolerance, talking openly about what they want their own long-term care situation to look like, and then allowing an advisor to create buckets or mandates or purpose to certain resources so that we know what monies will be called upon should the market go down or should we have you know either people in a couple pass away prematurely or we have a long-term care event that happens sooner than expected for one of the two um, so in all of those ways i think it's just going deeper conversationally into what is your WDIW? What do I want? And then really, really creating purpose around buckets of money so that they speak to that. Okay. You said two things that like set my alarm bells off. Um, one, and for our readers uh, as well, um, social security and long-term care. So um, yeah. social security claiming, I mean, that's how can we optimize that? by looking at all of your available options and getting really educated. So Angela, you and I had a great conversation about a month ago and we talked about these three things, social security, long-term care, and the other one you and I talked about was Medicare premium brackets. Yeah, I can't stress enough, if you do not have a financial strategy, and I call it a strategy, a plan sounds like something that you run in a computer module and then you dip in bronze and you put it on the bookshelf and you're like, I have a plan. Right. A strategy happens intra-year, every year, and it takes into consideration tax brackets, inflationary adjustments, market conditions. Last year was a hard market. Bonds were down just as much, if not more, so than the stock market. So if yeah. your plan was that you were living off bonds and then going to live off equities, that, that plan was kind of defunct going into this yeah. year. And so to your specific question and your readers questions, there are a lot of social security options available. And, you know, if you are married, if you are widow or widowered, if you were divorced, but married to someone for 10 plus years, now you're talking about exponential numbers of options. Yeah. If you are single, you still want to think about, okay, what is the purpose of my accumulated wealth? How do I feel about risk? Because that does play into it. If you are incredibly risk, divert, risk adverse, then you really have to weigh your options between income now or a known rate of return between full retirement age and age 70, your maximum age for collecting. But then at the same time, that risk adverse person, how are you setting up your other resources to live off of for that multi-year period of time while you let your social security benefit grow? And so 
it's not to kick the can or not walk through all the available options, but I think this is a deeply personal decision and it has to be purpose driven and you have to walk through what's most important to me, income now, preservation of wealth, passing of wealth to my heirs. And the way you model all of this out will really depend upon how you make that decision for you. And then going to explore, am I somebody who has multiple iterations of social security strategy, meaning file and suspend or claim off of my spouse then claim off of my own or you know there's so many ways to think about this and i am just a huge believer in you have to model it out for each individual couple or individual person and it seems like it's something that's always in flux i would say um something that you're always looking at and fine-tuning as you go because your situation does change yes Um, and if compassion by definition is empathy in motion. I have deep compassion right now for those who are coming up to this monumental decision because it is something they've saved for, for their entire life, whether they thought about it or not. But you can no longer go sit at the social security office and have someone print papers and walk you through. And it's now all done online unless you go through being a surviving spouse or you have some other or, you know, life-changing event, a disability event, but for just the traditional enroller, it is all online. And that is a lot of onus to navigate on your own if yeah. you're not pulling in someone else's advice. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, okay. I've got to tell you, Nicole, you are a popular guest because we're getting tons of questions. So I'm just going to jump into one of our um, viewer questions here. Yeah. Okay. Um, what, this is from Steve. What is your annual inflation rate expectation for RMD distribution models for the next 10 to 20 years? Or do you just use the 3% average? It's a big one, but. It's a huge question. Um, So interesting because our clients have been asking us this. So this question doesn't catch me off guard because we've been modeling multi-year projections using, you know, a fixed rate of inflation. And there's a lot of curiosity on with the spikes we're seeing now and the stickiness around it. How do we model it going forward? And our firm has made the determination that we will continue to use three and a half percent compounding annually in perpetuity. We believe that the law of averages prevails over time unless we have enough years to show otherwise. And so taking modeling where you're running, you know, a risk on rate of return at seven, but an inflation rate at six and a half, that's not helpful modeling because everything we're doing with monetary policy and some fiscal policy measures is all to combat inflation. Because what we need to do is move money through the money system to regain the efficiencies of global economies. And we believe that that will happen. We just don't know how many years. And so we might see something like we saw in the past, spikes in inflation for a multi-year period of time, and then zero inflation or a deflationary environment for multiple years of time, which brings us to that law of averages. So we are still using a three and a half percent rate in perpetuity. Okay, all right. Well. Here's another one that's kind of bouncing off what we were talking about earlier. Um, This is from Neil. He's asking, 
um, host a traditional brokerage account better than maxing out your 401k. Uh, the brokerage settlement slash settlement account is taxed during the periods held um, versus the tax deferred nature of the 401k. I had always heard that the tax deferred dollar saved now is worth more than a dollar in the future. Except for the fact that where things have changed is twofold. One, there was a fundamental belief that uh, your tax rate would drop in retirement. And number two, you know, there was some traditional ways of thinking that you were levied such high tax and high expense on your brokerage investments, meaning you had so much income that was flowing through onto your tax return. A lot of that train of thought comes from a, a period in time when period people weren't living as long in retirement. And so you have this entire baby boomer generation that's retiring in their 60s. They've amassed incredible wealth. And what we're finding is that they are living 20 to 30 years. And during that period of time, they are spending money and they're spending in income very similar to their income that they had in their working years. And so when we think about future tax, we actually need tax diversification or you're getting really penalized for deferring all of that growth. So while the deferred growth was nice, it's not enough to outrun future tax rates. The second is that there's more investment options available to investors when we look at brokerage accounts. And so if we go back to one of the biggest issues from a tax perspective with mutual funds, as an example, was inside the mutual fund, the portfolio manager was buying and selling stocks. And so you would get what was kindly referred to a little cheekily as the December surprise, where that manager would pass along capital gains. Even if you didn't buy or sell a single share of that mutual fund, the internal trading was passing along a taxable event to you. Well, what, what consumers have gotten more aware of is the use of exchange traded funds or more tax efficient investments that don't provide that same level of turnover in a taxable way. And so by being pretty prescriptive or mindful about what types of investments you're using, you can really run scenarios to prove out that a split between you know, tax deferred and after tax money provides you a higher rate of distribution net dollars um, than you might actually have thought previously. Okay. Um, now, this is a yeah. great one from Sean. Um, for someone who may retire prior to full Social Security age, I am calculating, am I calculating correctly, thinking it might be beneficial to live off tax-deferred retirement funds and push back the start of collecting Social Security until later so that one, Social Security payments are higher later, and two, the combined effect of IRA, IRA withdrawals and Social Security are minimized. Got it. So the, it sounds, yes. I mean, this is one of those where I don't know how many years before your full retirement age, you know, there's a lot of strategies around um, thinking about how much income you pull forward onto your tax return if you're not yet available for Medicare. Um, if you are if you are eligible for Medicare, so you're in just this couple year gap between Medicare and full retirement age, um, people will think about soaking up specific tax brackets with their IRA dollars. Um, 
and then yes, letting their social security compound or grow until a future value where then they want to set it and go from there. Um, again, so much of that, we really look at um, more than anything, kind of the various income streams and then the split between taxable, tax deferred and tax advantaged buckets and advising on you know, what brackets we want to stay in. One of the sneaky things that's coming up, and Angela, I know you are so aware of this, is we have the current tax laws sunsetting at the yes. end of 2025. Yes. <laughs> and that went fast. And that, is, <laughs> that is gonna be a pay cut for a lot of people, whether yeah. you're retired or working, because those brackets are more expensive. So when we go retro to the old brackets, our net dollars are likely less for most people. And so again, thinking about, okay, if you're 65 today, you're gonna to be 68 in a couple of years, that coincides with a spike in future tax rates, then yeah, you're gonna to wanna to be really mindful about maybe I wanna soak up all of the 22% bracket. Maybe I wanna soak up all of the 24% bracket and use this runway before tax rates change to create tax diversification that maybe you don't have in your plan right now. So I think it's even a broader conversation than just social security. Um, I love that question though, because when we do modeling for our near retirees or our existing retirees, we're really thinking about effective tax rates and resources or buckets of money and how much to pull from each one. And we pull it out 10 years to try and really maximize on what Medicare brackets are we going to hit if that's a two-year look back? If we know Social Security between, you know, FRA and 70 is compounding at X percent, you know, versus our implied rate of return given the risk profile. And so you start to see where you really need cohesiveness across those three pillars of planning, which are taxes, investments, and then stewardship or my double. WDIW, what do I want? Am I thinking about maximum wealth transfer to heirs? Am I thinking about maximum income for myself? And all of that really plays into that decision making. Yeah, no, it, it's that's great. Um, now, we're just about out of time. I've got one more question for you. And, um, yeah. you know, hopefully this can help a lot of people out there. You know, sometimes finances are are simple, but they're also kind of complex. And just hearing all these things that we're talking about, there's a lot of moving parts. So how can people get the help they need and what are some best practices there? This is so interesting and I'm gonna try to not be long-winded, but this is just such a passion point comment. One of the things when I, I speak to industry professionals is I'll ask a room, I'll say, have you ever Googled how to find a financial advisor or you know, what questions to ask? And then you read the questions and you're like, ooh, I was just like, that's not the right thing to ask. So you know, in terms of talking to friends and family who ask that question, there are a lot of independent research groups that do audit and peel back and look into financial advisory practices. And so you know, I'm not going to name any names out there, but there, again, there are independent research firms that do that. And so looking at some of those lists like best in or top, um, they can lead you in the right direction if you're looking for ones that are backed by research groups. 
The second thing I would say is be acutely aware of what the word fiduciary means right. and how advisors you're interviewing or working with act as a fiduciary. And there's lots of different fiduciary standards. Every registered investment advisory and RIA that reports to the SEC is a fiduciary as a business, but the advisors that work for them may not all be operating as fiduciaries. And so again, mm -hmm. just digging deeper into that word and what it means to the professional that you're interviewing. And then the third thing I would say is for the consumer, you know, there's lots of different types of advisors and there's different types of financial institutions and they're not all the same and what they serve the public isn't all the same. And I would say if you're novice to this, you would interview all three types to see which one is a fit for what you're looking for. And if I simplified that down, I would say some, you know, investment firms or advisory firms are, are custodians. Um, some are wirehouses or banks, and some are independent. And each of them have slightly different business models and work differently with their clients. And I think exploring each of those options. Um, and then there's some certified financial planners, CFP professionals that work in the capacity of only preparing financial plans for people. And so, again, there's so many ways to engage in finding help, um, but you have to get educated in the different types of help available. And then I say interview lots of people the same way you would do if it was something else that was this important, like your health. Right. I mean, it is your life savings. You it's pretty important, right? <laughs> yes. I, so, you know, I'm, I'm astounded by how many people want to own this responsibility, especially when I think about the ripple effect of every action and um, but also daunting to go find the right relationship. Okay. And so there is legwork involved in that. Um, and so just, you know, seek it out because this adv advice is invaluable and it's so much more, as much as we all want to outperform the market, we also need the advice of someone who is planning for that multi-year strategy. What are my blind spots? Where can I be more efficient? And there are certain things that you just absolutely cannot control, like what the market's going to do one year to the next. Who's the next president? How are related to month or year to year? How you set yourself up for tax diversification or investment diversification, income streams to navigate Medicare costs. It's real. Oh, Nicole, I think you've frozen on me or have I frozen on you? Anyway, it was perfect timing for that freeze because we're out of time. Nicole, if you're out there, you have been an amazing guest for us. Oh, there you are again. Okay. I was going to say you disappeared on me. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's the uh, the gods telling us it's time to end. I'm about like, to get the hook here anyway. <laughs> um, thank you so much for being with us. You're a wonderful guest. I mean, just judging by the comments we oh. had flooding in uh, was terrific. So um, thank you to Nicole and to our audience for tuning in. Uh, we hope that you listen to our next episode tomorrow. Oh. Baron's deputy editor, Alex Where is Yule, she? <laughs> associate 
editor for technology, Eric J. Savitz, will discuss the outlook for tech companies and individual stocks. Thank you again for listening today. Stay safe and have a great day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.